If you will, though, we're going to continue our journey through the book of Genesis. Last time we finished up with Genesis chapter 24. It took us three times to get through it. It's a huge chapter, 67 verses. Chapter 25 is not nearly as big, but there is a lot in it. And uh, my guess is we will not get all the way through it today. Uh, we will get started, though. So turn with me, if you would, to Genesis chapter 25. Halfway through now, this incredible book that I have been preaching through for roughly four years now. Good, good. Halfway. <laughs> Going to be finishing this up when I retire from teaching. <laughs> All right. While you're turning there, though, while you turn to Genesis chapter 25, I want to kind of do a little review with you. I always say good teachers do review. So I want to remind you what we covered last couple times in Genesis chapter 24. Remember, chapter 24 was all about finding a wife for Isaac. And I want to reiterate what I was really trying to emphasize out of that chapter, which is this. The seriousness that Abraham approached that task with. Abraham and his servant looked at that task, the task of finding Isaac a wife, with incredible seriousness. The future of Abraham's lineage, remember, was riding on this. And I've got news for you. The future of your lineage is riding on what kind of spouse your children land with. If that doesn't worry you in some sense, if that doesn't spurn you to action then I wonder whether Christ has a hold of your heart or not. Abraham and his servant looked at that task with incredible seriousness. And I said before, I think we should take it just as seriously as he did. Abraham was really showing us how serious we should all be about this issue of godly spouses for our children. Who you marry is a far more important decision than where you go to college, what major you choose, what career you end up in, what house you live in, what town you work in, etc. And we, and when I say we, I mean Christians in America, do not take this task nearly seriously enough by and large. On the whole, we do not take this nearly seriously enough. What do we take seriously? Football, basketball, baseball, sports, extracurricular activities, hobbies. We're the only place in the world where you can find a professional wiffle ball league. That's how seriously we take hobbies in America. I mean, we will live and die over that. I've got, I know men that are almost as old as I am who will live and die over the Xbox games that they play. You know, you understand, I've got to get home. i got guys waiting on me. I'm thinking like, oh, they've got like a job. No, what they're talking about is their Call of Duty pals are all getting online at the same time. They're waiting on me, man. i got to get home. It's serious. And not nearly that serious about our commitment to the scripture not nearly that serious about our commitment to making sure our children have godly wives godly husbands know the scriptures no christian history no doctrine no theology no no we're really serious about everything else i have lots more to say but i won't because it makes my blood pressure rise we should be more serious about this. Eternity is riding on this. Literally, in a very real sense, the eternal well-being of your own children, your own grandchildren, your own great-grandchildren is riding on who your child chooses as a mate. 
There's no such thing as it being so serious. You cannot stress it too much. It's very serious. It's certainly not something to be frivolous about or toyed with or flicked off to the side as if it doesn't matter. And that's a lot of times what happens. Abraham realized that truth and he faced it with ultimate seriousness. And that's why Abraham was willing to sacrifice whatever was necessary in order to secure the right kind of spouse for his son. We pointed out that Abraham's ultimate concern was that his son not get entangled with an ungodly Canaanite girl. Why? He knows a pagan girl, an a ungodly girl from this culture that he's living in, is not going to teach godliness to his grandchildren. And an ungodly Canaanite pagan girl from this culture will not teach godliness to your grandchildren either. Abraham knows an ungodly girl is not going to be equally yoked with his son, and that issue should be just as important to us today. It was an important enough issue that Abraham was willing to single out his most trustworthy servant, make him swear an oath on Abraham's own loins, equip him with whatever he needed, and send him on a journey of more than a thousand miles round trip to find a suitable bride. That is taking that issue seriously. And by the way, the thousand-mile round trip was far before interstates and cars. This was going to take serious work. And what happened because of it? He took it very seriously. And what happened? God rewarded their godly priorities and diligence with the kind of success that godly diligence typically produces. If we were as concerned about our children as we say we are, the Christian community in America would look much different. But a lot of times when we say we're concerned about our children, what we really mean to our shame is that we're concerned that our children make us look good. And that's not really being concerned about our children. That's being concerned about our own self-image. The reason I want my son to be the football star, my, my daughter to be the whatever star, because that way I can brag about him at the coffee shop. We will move heaven and earth Make sure our daughter can get the right softball coach. Our son can get the right whatever. Football coach. Or into the good school. And not care about the spouse that they bring home. If we were diligent, I wonder what it would look like if we were as diligent as we are about sports and extracurricular activity, all the things that don't matter in the scheme of things, in eternity, they don't matter. If we were that serious, as serious as we are about those, if we were that serious about our children knowing the Scripture, about our children making sure our children choose godly mates, what would the Christian community in America look like? I don't know, but it wouldn't look like what we typically see today. It would cut out a lot of the nonsense and the noise. They're very diligent. They're very serious about this thing. We find God because of this, their seriousness. Remember, Eliezer is just as serious as Abraham. Eliezer knows how serious Abraham is about this. And Eliezer is a good shepherd. He's a good student. He's a good servant. He's kind of the model, I said before, of really what a godly pastor should look like. He takes very seriously the issue of the bride. And we find God leading Eliezer to a girl that's beyond his wildest dreams. She's a diamond among the gravel. She's a rose among the thorns. 
She's strong. She's fit. She's healthy. She's an incredibly hard worker. I cannot stress to you how serious a work ethic is in the character of a person. But not just men, by the way. I I agree that we have a real dearth of work ethic in our culture. There are very many men who are just scared of hard work. They're scared of physical labor. Like, I'm going to have to, am I going to have to do that with my own hands? Can I pay somebody for that? Right? It's true. But you know what else we have a dearth of? We also have it in our ladies. And we don't often talk about that. But if you're going to be a godly mom, you are going to have to have serious work ethic. If you would like to see what work ethic looks like, I double dare you. Go out to my house on any given day of the week and follow my wife around. See if you can keep up. She's not here so I can brag on her. She homeschools four little kids. She makes food. She does. I don't know when she. I'm really serious. I do not know when she finds the time. To do laundry. I don't know when that happens. But somehow it does. To keep a home. To do all the things she does. Requires diligence. And the truth is. A lot of times we live in an an age. A day and age when shortcuts are just easier. And we would just like to shortcut it. And so we'll pass off anything. When it comes to the raising of our children. To somebody else. I'm glad Eliezer didn't have that mindset. He finds a girl that doesn't have that mindset. Strong, fit, healthy, hard worker, and a woman of high character. She's so far beyond what he imagined he might find that at one point we find him staring, and the Bible says, marveling at her. He's literally dumbfounded at what a jewel of a young woman he's just found for Isaac. I can understand that. I can see what he's thinking. Like, how is this girl still, like, available How is a girl like this not already snapped up? Well, sometimes it's because the priorities, the things that people are looking for in the culture are not those godly values. The things that they're much more concerned with are things like, are they from a wealthy, influential family? Will having this marriage forward my social standing? And by the way, we can be just as guilty of that today. The Lord had orchestrated everything perfectly. Think about what it took for the Lord to orchestrate that timing. He goes, Eliezer and his men are going 500 miles and they show up on the outskirts of town by the well. And it just so happens that literally as they're pulling up to the well and Eliezer is praying, then Rebecca comes out. If she would have been 30 minutes earlier that day, she would have missed it. If she would have been there and back already, he'd have never seen her. What would have happened? It really doesn't matter. There's not a plan B with God. He knew that. He knew what timing would be necessary on both parts. And he made sure both parties ended up at the right place in the right time. You know, sometimes you can have divine delays. Do you ever get frustrated at that? Because I'm going to say something. I do. Okay? If I've got my own timeline for the day set, and I've got to be at such and such place at such and such time, typically, when I'm five miles away from that place, I'm already ten minutes behind anyway. Don't slow me down. Right? <laughs> I had a professor tell me one time. <laughs> came into class. He goes, Mr. Wilson, you're, you're right on time today. I was like, I know. It's incredible. He says, look, 
I just figure five minutes late is ten minutes early for you, man. <laughs> uh, yeah. One of my favorite professors. Yeah. And when you get delayed, do you get upset about it? I do. Do you know that sometimes God has a divine delay? Because his timing isn't your timing. Do you guys remember years ago when there was, there was a, the DC sniper? You remember that? Golly, that was a, more than like a decade ago now, wasn't it? There was a man who was basically terrorizing the Washington, D.C. area. He had drilled. We, we find out later. We didn't know it at the time. We find out later. He'd taken this old car, taken the back seats out of it, and drilled some holes in the trunk. And he would go park this old car, and he would literally shoot out. He would lay down in the, in the car so nobody could see he was in there. And he was shooting out these holes in the trunk. He was killing people around the D.C. area. And there was some truck drivers, of all things, who were talking about it back and forth while they were trucking around the beltway. And one of them, a Christian, says, you know, we should pray about this. And there was a bunch of chatter on the radio. It's like, man, I, I'd like to, I'd like to. I, we need to stop somewhere and just pray. Pray that God would, would you know, let this guy get caught. And everybody's, oh, I, don't, I, don't, I, can't, I can't, I'm on a time schedule here, man. I'm a trucker. Like, my paycheck requires me to be at a certain place at a certain time. So one of the guys comes back and says, look, I'm going to pull over at this certain stop, and I'm going to pray. And if any of you all want to pull in here and pray with me, come on. And there were so many trucks, they couldn't hardly fit them into the ramp. So many guys stopped off to, to pray. And you know they found him the next day? I'm sure those were just coincidental things. Those guys were willing to have their day's routine held back because something of the Lord required their attention. And I fear that in the day and age we live, we are much less apt to do that. I'm not saying that every one of you is that. I know I'm that way. And I get frustrated when my timeline gets, you know, pushed around. Yesterday I had a guy that got a hold of me. He was going through a lot of stuff in his marriage. Hey, I really want to meet up and talk. I haven't seen this guy for a while. And I'm preparing a sermon. Ah. And so I went. It's been a long time. And I hope, I pray that the Lord's will comes through that. But it was very difficult for me because I, that my timeline was already crunched, you know, right? I've got these certain hours set aside. And, but imagine if that had been her. The Lord literally wove together this timeline perfectly so that Eliezer and Rebecca end up at the same place, the right place at the right time. And I say that to say to you, maybe when you're being delayed, maybe you should remember, maybe it's for a reason. Maybe the flat tire was so you could talk to the guy that comes by to help you about the Lord. Maybe you, you get headed to work and you go, oh my goodness, I forgot i got to fill up with gas. Hey, I did that once. I get to brag about this. I did that once. Oh, I can't believe this. So I had to slow down and go to the gas station and get gas. I talked to this really sweet little lady there. She was from Illinois. She just moved down. So I invited her to church. Boyd's marrying her in a while. I mean, that divine delay worked out pretty well, you know. But it didn't feel so good at the time, right? No, maybe there are times when God takes us off of our thinking, of our timeline, because he has something that he wants us to accomplish I'm working even though you don't know it. I'm working here. 
Ah, oh, God, I'm just, oh, I can't. No, I'm working. I'm in the little details. I have a plan, and it's not always yours. Just relax. Relax and remember, focus on me. Not that you got to get all this done today. There are other people that you can minister in that. And I'm, I'm preaching to me. I'm bad about that. I know that. I'm working on that. But God was doing that. He was working on their behalf. Remember what the scripture says. Romans 8. It's he that's working on our behalf. It's he that's working in you, by the way, to will and do to, your, to his good pleasure. He's working on behalf of his people. He's working on behalf of his glory. Now, the Lord had orchestrated it perfectly. How impossible must that task have seemed? What are the odds that they would fail? And yet God was working it all out for the good of his people. For those who loved him and are called according to his purpose. That's what Romans 8, 28 says. He is working it out for those who love him and are the called according to his purpose. Well, it doesn't feel like it. I don't, I've had these setbacks. Well, they might be setbacks to you. They're not setbacks to God. It didn't take him by surprise. It didn't catch him off guard. He may be using what you think of as a setback to increase your faith. To literally teach you that you can trust him. Did it happen to uh, Abraham and Isaac? Absolutely. Abraham gets married. God gives him a promise. You're going to have a kid. He's going to be the child of promise. I'm going to make him great. Nations are going to come from him. And what happens? They can't get pregnant. They can't get pregnant. And they can't get pregnant. This is a serious setback. There were no fertility clinics to them go hit up at the time. Right? And what, what does God do through all of that? He uses that to increase their faith. He uses that to grow them. And we're going to see today in chapter 25, he does the exact same thing to Abraham's son. Uh, wouldn't you love that? My mom and dad have told me these stories about all this stuff they went through before I was conceived and born. Mm, don't laugh too hard. You're going to get to go through it too. Chapter 24 ends with the following verse. Then Isaac brought her, Rebekah, into his mother Sarah's tent and took Rebekah and she became his wife and he loved her. And so Isaac was comforted after his mother's death. So we start chapter 25 with that. We see, basically what we're seeing is now, the narrative is kind of shifting. It's shifting away from Abraham. We've been tracking Abraham for 12 chapters. We've been watching his faith grow and change. We've been watching him be able to, to trust the Lord. He's now teaching that to his son. And now the narrative is going to shift in chapter 25. And we're going to see that Abraham has, at some point, faithfully passed down the faith to his son. We're going to see his son go through the same kind of trials as Abraham. We're going to see his son get married to this woman he loves and then not be able to have children, even though he's been promised that he would. But we're going to see something in his son. This is, oh, this, ooh, this break me down. His, mm, forgive me, Lord. His son has an advantage. His son knows how to handle the trial because he's learned it from dad. 
his son is going to get from A to B in his spiritual journey much faster than Abraham did. And that's because I am firmly convinced Abraham was willing to share with him, here's what's going on. Here's what God's done in my life. I don't want you to make the same mistakes. If this happens to you, if you get into this situation with the Lord, here's how to handle it the right way. I didn't handle it the right way. I did this. Don't do that. Here in chapter 25, we're going to see that very thing. Remember, Abraham couldn't have children. What do they do? What's the plan that Sarah hatches? Hey, we're having trouble having kids, so take your maidservant. We'll have a baby through her. Isaac knows that's not the way to handle this. Isaac knows from Abraham, from his dad, from catching this faith being taught to him, Isaac knows that's not the way to handle this. The way to handle this is to petition the Lord. It's in the Lord's hand. Only the Lord can open and close the womb. And so we'll see him do exactly that. So let's get in here. Chapter 25. Without further ado. Chapter 25. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your word. I ask you might grant me grace to exposit and preach it faithfully today. That your people might be built up and encouraged that they might be challenged and comforted, that they might be strengthened in their efforts to live a life that's fully pleasing to you. We thank you for it, Lord, in Jesus' name. And all God's people said, Amen. Chapter 25. Abraham again took a wife, and her name was Keturah. And she bore him Zimran, Jokshan, Medan, Midian, Ishbak, and Shua. Jokshan begot Sheba and Dedan. Uh, by the way, it's often easy to forget that Abraham took another wife after Sarah and fathered six more sons. There's actually some theological debate as to whether he married her before Sarah was dead or not. And, and I won't get into all of that. You can look that up and parse that out yourself if you'd like. But the long story short is this. He fathered six more sons. Okay. Most of the time, if you ask a Christian or anybody in our culture about Abraham, typically they can tell you, well, yeah, he had a son named Isaac. He was the son of promise, right? They kind of know that story. And sometimes if they're, you know, really a Bible student, they'll tell you, well, yeah, not just that. He also had another son, Ishmael. But for some reason, we forget about these other six, right? No, Abraham didn't have just one son or two. He had, he had eight. Okay. Now, these were through more of like a, what we would call a concubine, really. She was a wife, but she wasn't really a wife in the same sense that Sarah was. But in total, Abraham had eight sons. And these sons of Keturah, these six children, these boys of Keturah, would themselves become the fathers of entire nations and distinct people groups. Zimran, we're told by Josephus, the uh, historian, lived in a country known at the time as Arabia Felix. Uh, Felix is Latin for fertile. So that would mean like fertile Arabia. Basically, they're talking about today we would call it Yemen, right? This portion of Arabia that's well watered, that has streams, you know, not all of Arabia is a desert. Most of it is. But this part's not. Southern Arabia is, like I said, today we call it Yemen. That is actually where Zimran uh, basically went to. He's still memorialized, by the way, by the Arabian town by the name of Zabran, which is named after this guy. It's today located between the Arabic cities of Mecca and Medina. So this guy became great. He became a prince of the land, if you will. The second son of Keturah was Jokshan. The historical importance of Jokshan was he fathered Sheba and Dedan. You remember Sheba? The queen of Sheba that came to meet Solomon. Sheba was kind of an important thing. 
Uh, by the way, we find both Sheba and Dedan in the books of Ezekiel and Jeremiah, right? So this is very important. There was Midian, the father of the Midianites. That was the fourth son mentioned. <laughs> in the story of Joseph and his brothers, Joseph was sold by his brothers to a group of Ishmaelites or Midianite merchants. So they were very historically important as well. Shua, who was the youngest, seems to have turned northward. He traveled up into northern Mesopotamia, into what now is the northern region of modern-day Syria. Uh, and evidenced by cuneiform texts, um, the land seems to have been named after him, in fact. In fact, it's known as uh, the land of Suku or Suchu, after Shua, which lies to the south of the ancient Hittite capital of Carchemish, of the Euphrates River. The book of Job also records that Job's friend Bildad was a Shuite. Bildad the Shuite. I know some of you all are. You're laughing for the same reason I am, aren't you? You've seen the illustration where the guy's really tall. He's the size of a shoe, right? Not Shuite. Not Shuite. Shuite. What's that mean? Descended from Shua, which is one of the sons of Abraham, right? Those were the sons through Keturah. And there also a further demonstration that in Abraham's marriage to Sarah, whatever fertility problems that existed seemed to have stemmed from her family, which we're going to see today again with Rebecca. Going on, verse 3. And the sons of Dedan were Eshurim, Leshchim, Luamim, and the sons of Midian were Ephah, Epher, Hanak, Abadah, and Eldah. And these were the children of Keturah. Verses 1 through 6 also serve to establish the fact that Abraham was, in fact, the father of many nations, just like God told him. He didn't forget that promise when Abraham died. That should be great comfort to us today. God does not forget his covenant, and he doesn't forget his covenant people. Still, it was Isaac through whom the blessings and promises of the Abrahamic covenant would be realized. It was Isaac that was promised the Messiah to come through. In fact, the promise to Abraham in Genesis 17:4 was fulfilled, remember, with those children. Verse 5, and Abraham gave all he had to Isaac. But when Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines. So these were not in the same category, obviously, as Isaac. Abraham gave gifts to the sons of the concubines, which Abraham had. And while he was still living, he sent them eastward, away from Isaac, his son, to the country of the east. Consistent with his faith in God, Abraham gave gifts to his other children and sent them off so that they would be out of Isaac's way. They would not be competing with Isaac. They wouldn't be fighting with Isaac. It was kind of the deal. Then what happens? Verse 7. This is the sum of the years of Abraham's life, which he lived, 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man and full of years, and was gathered together to his people. He passed away. After a rich and full life, Abraham died, which was a fulfillment, by the way, of the word of God to Abraham. Remember, God had told Abraham in chapter 15, as for you, you'll go to your fathers in peace and be buried at a good old age. Remember, he struggled to believe that. And eventually what we see is in his latter years, he finally did believe that. He finally realized my protection is not in how many men I have, how many swords I have, how well I can fight. It's in the Lord God. By the way, as a side, kind of a side note here for those of you that 
like little academia trivia. I, I had a conversation this week with a precious saint about this thing, and so I thought I'd bring this up because it kind of comes in. Genesis 6, 3 tells us this. The Lord said, my spirit will not strive with man forever, for he is indeed flesh, yet his days shall be 120 years. And the conversation I was having was because this, this precious saint was asking, okay, what does that mean? Does that mean that people will no longer live more than 120 years? And I said, no, that's not what that means. But I have also heard that. And we were kind of talking about that. I said, I've heard that too. I was actually taught that when I was a kid. And he said, yeah, me too. That's very common in our culture. I don't know where it came from. I was trying to figure out where that came from, by the way. My guess is probably someone who was a very well-known radio teacher or TV teacher had said that at some point, And it just kind of gets out there. Does that make sense? But actually, that's not what that's talking about. Genesis chapter 6 Verse 3, when it's talking about, hey, the, uh, my spirit will not strive with man forever. He's indeed flesh. His days will be 120 years. He's saying, in 120 years, there's going to come a flood and kill humanity. The clock is ticking. You'll notice after that, by the way, is when he speaks to Noah and says, hey, yo boy, build a boat, get on it, right? There's coming a flood. That's what he was talking. He was not saying the natural lifespan of man will be no more than 120 years, right? But by the way, this is one of the places where we can obviously see that's not true, right? Well, if, if he said that in verse, or chapter 6, but Abraham's living to 175 years in chapter 25, obviously that's not what he's saying. Does that make sense? But we still have people today, every now and again, that live more than 120 years. That's a, I, that's a long time. I mean, in today's terms. I mean, I know like in Noah's day, that's like a whippersnapper. Died so young. He was so full of life. Took us by surprise. But today, that would be a very, you know, long lifespan, right? Um, in fact, uh, I read about, while I was studying for this, I actually read about a woman named Jean Calmet, French woman who just died in the uh, late 90s. But we have very good records of her birth. That's why it's a big deal. She lived to be 122 a long way. It's a long time. In fact, she lived so long that they actually commissioned university studies to try to figure out how in the world did she live this long, right? You, what's her secret, right? It's crazy. How, so, anyway, I won't get into that. Let's get back to this, okay? Back to the passage at hand. The sum of the years of Abraham's life which he lived was 175 years. Then Abraham breathed his last and died in a good old age, an old man full of years, gathered to his people. And his sons, Isaac and Ishmael, buried him in the cave of Machpelah. Now, why would that be strange? It wouldn't be strange to me to read that Isaac buried him. It would be strange to me to read that Ishmael was there. Why? I want you to think about this. Why would that be strange? Well, Ishmael, remember, had left. He'd gone off. He's not around. And there are no phones or Internet. There's no Pony Express. Right? There's not a mail service to get the, uh, the message out to him. There's no way for Ishmael to know that his dad died. Unless Isaac, through having great decency and grace. Remember, Isaac can still remember when Ishmael was picking on him when they were kids. And yet when their dad dies, he sends a communication of some sort to Ishmael and says, Dad's gone. Come home. Let's bury him. 
I think that says something about Isaac's character. Have you ever seen people that have this, they have this rivalry with their brother or their sister growing up, and they are so shallow in their character that they can never get rid of it? Some of y'all are thinking, uh, that might be me. Have you? I've struggled with that before. My brother and I, that I grew up with, the brother I grew up with, who was two years younger than me, we've had some doozies of some fights before. At some point, though, we had to grow up and get beyond that. The last time we really had a, you know, a tangling where that went to the ground, it was a long time ago. At least like two years. <laughs> I'm serious. <laughs> I think my brother's 38 and I was 40. I tackled him in a wheat field. <laughs> you are not going to talk that way to me. He's like, are you serious? Yes, I'm serious. Oh, man. Uh, all the things that I hate about humanity, they stare at me in the mirror sometimes, right? No, there are people like that, though. Get so angry at their brother or sister. They get so bitter over, Mom said this to you. She always treated you better. Dad always liked you more when we were kids. You know what? Ishmael could have said that too. Isaac could have said those kind of things to Ishmael. If there's anybody that had actual good reason to hold a grudge against their brother, it would be these two guys. And yet we find Ishmael coming back and the two of them burying their dad. Common decency out of respect. It should be a witness to us. So Abraham breathed his last and died, and it came to pass after he died. His sons Ishmael and Isaac buried him in the cave of Machpelah, which is before Mamre. Remember, that was the, the cave that he had bought in chapter 23. He bought it for his wife and then basically for me and for my offspring. The field of Ephron, the son of Zoar, the Hittite, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth. There Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. And it came to pass after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. And Isaac dwelt at Beer Lehi Roy. So Abraham finally passes on to be with the Lord. This is kind of the end of that portion of Scripture. We've tracked with him for 12 chapters now. He was one of the most important men in all of the Scripture. In fact, he's mentioned in 70 times just in the New Testament, never mind the Old Testament. In fact... Um, other than Jesus Christ, he's, he is the third most mentioned person in the New Testament. Seventy times he's mentioned in the New Testament. Moses is the only other Old Testament character mentioned more often. He's mentioned 80 times in the New Testament. Jesus Christ is the only one that's mentioned more. This is a very important figure in scriptural history. Abraham is pointed to in the New Testament as a pattern for all believers. He's seen as the model of the Christian life where a person is called out from their old life of darkness to begin a new journey of following Christ wherever that might lead them. He's a model of coming out from among them and being separate. You remember that? Second Corinthians. Come out from among them and be separate, says the Lord. That's second Corinthians six seventeen. That's what he's commanding us to do. When you come to Christ, you come out from among the pagan culture you find yourself which is certainly what you find yourself in today, come out from among them and be different. Be separate. 
That's not just an Old Testament command. That is in the New Testament. Don't be like the culture. And that's exactly what Abraham was such a great model of. Abraham was certainly a great man. But I want you to remember at the end of the day, he was still only a man. His life is one of struggles and even failures of faith. But it's also one of growth and of maturity and of conquest in faith. His life was, if nothing else, a model of what it is to walk by faith and not by sight. It doesn't mean your walk will be perfect. It won't. Christian, it won't. Your walk is not going to be perfect. I was having this conversation with that man last night. And he's just beating himself up over, you know, I had this big fight with with my wife. And and, and I said things I shouldn't have. And I threw this thing down and broke it. And I, I shouldn't have done that. If I'd only just not done that, you know, would my marriage be, you know, together today? And I finally said, when was that? Well, he tells me when. It was months and months and months ago. Years ago, actually. I said, did you go and apologize? Did you come back? And he's like, yeah, I felt terrible. I knew it wasn't right. I knew that wasn't a way to act. It's not a Christian way to act. And so I went back and apologized. And I said, that's the best you can do. If you're going to sit here and beat yourself up because, well, I just didn't do nobody does. No one can. I have good news for you and I have bad news for you. And that news is this. No man, no woman will ever, ever treat their spouse the way they should all the time. The only one who ever will is Jesus Christ. Period. So when you do say those things or you have the conflict or you don't treat them right, the best you can do is to go back and say, I realize I did that wrong. And if I had it to do all over again, I'd do it much differently. And I'm sorry. Would you please forgive me? And you as a spouse are going to have to look your spouse in the eyes and say, yes, I'll forgive you. And you know why you're going to have to do that? Because <laughs> they're going to have to do the same thing for you at some point. Right? Yes, I'll forgive you. Of course I'll forgive you. I love you. Abraham's life was a model of what it was to walk by faith and not by sight. It's a pattern we can hope to emulate. You will not win every battle in your spiritual walk. You won't. But you will know one who can. You'll know the one you need to run to when you don't. Now that Abraham's gone, God's work must be passed on to the next generation. And Abraham, like any good Christian man, has done all he can to pass the torch of faith down to his son. Specifically, Isaac, the son of promise. The truth is, Christian, and you know this. The truth is, we have to be raising our children in such a way that at some point we go, Look, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I'm about to go on and be with the Lord. There's nothing more I can do here. My race is almost done. Just like Paul wrote to Timothy, right? Why was he writing to Timothy that? He was saying, in essence, now you take the torch. And listen to me, Christian young people. That's you. I can't fight all the battles for you. At some point, there will be a day where God calls me home. And you are going to have to take the torch of faith into your generation. My question is this. Are you training for that? Is it important enough for you to give yourself to it? 
Are you preparing for that? Are we as Christian parents passing the faith down? Are we being faithful to pass it down to our children? Are you? And are you Christian young people? Are you being faithful to pick it up? Or is it more important to be popular at school? Is it more important to be loved by your culture? Or is it possible that this faith, this blessed faith delivered once and for all for the saints is important enough to give my life to, to be different? Abraham's now gone, but the purposes and promises of God remained in effect. In verse 11, Moses reminds us of this truth. And it came about after the death of Abraham that God blessed his son Isaac. He's showing us, yes, Abraham's gone. But the faith did not just depend on Abraham. The faith doesn't depend on Abraham. It depends on the God of Abraham, who is now with his son. His son, Abraham's son, is now in covenant with that same God. And that same God is continuing his purposes, his plan, his redemption. And he's doing it through the son now. He's got covenant promises to be carried on. The work continues. The torch has been passed. The families of Ishmael and Isaac move on. Man, going to have to hustle. This is the genealogy of Ishmael. I'm in verse 12. This is the genealogy of Ishmael, Abraham's son, who Hagar, the Egyptian, Sarah's maidservant, bore to Abraham. These were the names of the sons of Ishmael by their names, according to their generations. The firstborn of Ishmael was Nebajoth, then Kedar, Abdeel, Mibsam, Mishma, Duma, Massa, Hadar, Tima, Jechur, Naphish, and Kedema. They did not name their children the way we do. I want you to know I had to practice those names. These were the sons of Ishmael, and these were their names by their towns and their settlements. Notice this, 12 princes according to their nations. Remember what God told Ishmael? Remember what God said to Abraham about Ishmael? Ishmael, uh, hey, look, don't worry about Ishmael. I'm going to be with Ishmael too. I'm going to bless him, and I'm going to make him great, and princes will come from him. Well, that's exactly what happened. We're seeing God keep his word. That's really what the scripture is. It's a record of God giving and keeping his word. And he'll keep his word to you. These were the years of the life of Ishmael, 137 years. That's more than 120. And he breathed his last and died and was gathered to his people. And they dwelt from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt as you go toward Assyria. (coughs) He died in the presence of his brethren. Again, God is fulfilling his word. Genesis 17, 4, he said, as for me, behold, my covenant is with you and you'll be the father of a multitude of nations. Here we are in chapter 25 and we see that happening. Ishmael was a blessed man, at least in the natural. God's blessing in his hand was upon him. He got to see his own sons become great kings and leaders. And now look down to Isaac. This is the genealogy of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham begot Isaac. Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah as wife, the daughter of Bethuel, the Syrian of Paden Aram, the sister of Laban, the Syrian. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. Note that even the child of promise didn't come to the promise easily. 
What would you have done? Hey, God's given me a promise. I'm going to have a family. It's kind of hard to tell from this text unless you read the rest of it in context. We'll, we'll learn here in, in a few more chapters that uh, that was about 20 years. He got married at 40, which is not overly young to be getting married. And they didn't have any kids for 20 years. That seemed eerily familiar. But this time, he knows better. He doesn't go take a servant. He doesn't throw himself into the embrace of a concubine. What does he do? Look what he does. Look at his response. So Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife. For his wife. Dare I say, we probably, men, don't plead with the Lord for our wives enough. Isaac pleaded with the Lord for his wife because she was barren. And the Lord granted his plea. And Rebekah, his wife, conceived. No doubt at that point, Isaac was well aware of the drama surrounding his own conception and birth. Perhaps he was wondering whether the Lord would do the same thing with him and his bride. How long are we going to have to go through this? But we see him taking steps of faith, kind of having a head start, if you will. We see him bypassing some of the failures of Abraham. And that's the hope for us Christians. The hope for us is we can train our children in such a way, don't repeat my failures. Don't emulate my folly. Right? Learn from my life as well. Be a step ahead in your faith journey. Sometimes we can miss that it was 20 years. Imagine praying and hoping for 20 years without an answer. But he did not resort to what Abraham did, or Abraham and Sarah. He knew better. They'd taught him better. Isaac's prayers was answered, but it was about 20 years after Isaac and Rebekah were first married. Their faith and persistence in prayer was tested, and God used that to grow them. Notice what happens next. Verse 22, but the children struggled together within her, and she said, if all is well, why am I like this? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Good for you, Rebecca. She went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, it's because, why? There are two nations in your womb. Two people will be separated from your body. And one will be stronger than the other. And the older shall serve the younger. Oh, my. The Apostle Paul will mention this very thing in connection with God's sovereign choice of people. Turn with me to Romans chapter 9. And I'll have to... I'm going to close with this little piece here. Romans chapter 9. Every Calvinist in here is like, I love that chapter. (laughs) It's true. Start at verse 9. Romans chapter 9, verse 9. For this is the word of promise. At this time I will come and Sarah shall have a son. Ten, and not only this, but when Rebekah also had conceived by one man, even by our father Isaac, for the children not yet being born, not having done any good or evil, so that the purpose of God according to election might stand, not of works, but of him who calls. It was said to her, the older shall serve the younger. As it is written, 
Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. How is this? We're going to find out, and I'm going to get more into this next time. I'm not going to be able to, I just don't have the time to delve this all out. But the long story short is this. The, the writer is showing God has chosen before they were ever born. This is who they are. This is what they'll do. And this is who I'll save. And that's hard for us to come to grips with. We like to think that we are the ones in control of our destiny. Right? Invictus. We like the Invictus poem, right? I am the captain of my fate. I am the captain of my soul. We like that, don't we? But I've got news for you. Christian, there are things about your life that you cannot control. They are beyond your control. And there are certain things about your life that God has determined before you were ever born, before you were ever conceived, before the world began. The Bible says he wrote your name before the world began. He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. There are times, you know what, there are times where we can be covetous. We don't realize it. We don't think of it in those terms. But we see somebody that has more. Oh, man, that guy's got a great house. Or what a you know, great car. Or what a great marriage. Or what a great job. Or the career. He's so influential. She's so, she's so blessed with X, Y, Z. We can see all of those things. And we can become covetous. Well, God hasn't given me enough. That's really what our hearts are saying when we, say, when we do that, right? When I look at the guy down the road that's got the bigger house, and trust me, I struggle with that at times. You know, we've got four kids, and it's easy for us to outgrow our house, if you will. No, the Lord, the Lord has given me all I need. If I need more, then I need to ask. You have not because you ask not. And when you ask, James 4 says, you don't receive because you ask amiss that you might spend it on your own pleasures. In other words, you're just asking for the comforts of your flesh rather than asking for something you need. But if it's a need, then you bring it to the Lord and let the Lord provide. And I've got news that probably won't be news to most of you. It will not always be the way that you want or the way that you think of, right? But the Lord has promised to provide for you. You are his people. If you're living by faith in Jesus Christ, you're his child. He does not forget his children. He's chosen certain things about your life. And rather than be ungrateful and covetous, we should be turning to him in thanks. I mean, the Lord's given me a house. 2007, I was in Africa for a few weeks. Let me tell you something. I saw a real different standard of living. If you had a thatched roof that didn't leak too much, that was really a big deal. I got a house with a shingle roof. That's a whole lot better than a lot of folks have. Yeah, but my kids' bedrooms are so small. My kids all have beds. They have bedrooms. You know, I've heard there are some people that are so rich, they have such big houses that they have a house for them to live in, and then they have another smaller house right next to it just to keep cars in. Most people on earth don't have that. 
We do. And we take it for granted. We just think, well, I should. How entitled. And I am as guilty as the next man of it. No, the Lord has chosen you. And he's also chosen certain things about the path that you walk. That's why we shouldn't be praying. If you have a good job or an influential you know, place in society, that's why you shouldn't be arrogant about it. Because the Lord made that happen. And he didn't make it happen because you're somehow morally better than the guy who's not wealthy. He did it for his glory. And you and I should take the stations that life has given us, the stations that God has given us in this life, and utilize them for his glory. If that's riding on the back of a trash truck, then so be it. If it's witnessing to the people at the work where you're at, so be it. If it's being a a mom that stays home and teaches her kids about Christ, so be it. But let us do those things in such a manner as to glorify Christ. If we're teachers, then let us do it in such a manner as to glorify Christ. Let me be a good teacher. Let me teach my subject well. But let me also point my students to Christ. Because part of the reason I am at the station of life that I'm at, and the same thing goes for you no matter what station you're at, is because God is using me to give his gospel to others. Let your life be lived for his glory. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you've shown us today in your word that what you've shown us will be an encouragement to your people. Let it build us up, God, that we might better reflect the image of Christ in a lost and dying world. Lord, I pray you'd open doors of conversation this week that we might share what we've learned with others. And so many of us are going to get together with our families, with people that we've had squabbles with since we were little. God, give us the spiritual maturity to be able to put that behind us for the sake of the gospel. So many of us have unsaved family members. And it might just be, Lord, that you've put us in these families for the very express purpose of getting the gospel to them. Perhaps you've put us in families with the express purpose of us being able to get the gospel to some who would otherwise not get it. Let us be faithful to that. Give us the courage to be faithful to that. I thank you, Lord. Let us be disciples that live for your glory this week. It's in Jesus' name I ask. And all God's people said, Amen.